Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 204, Conversation with a Frustrated Trinitarian, Part 1. Corby Amos is a Sunday school teacher, deacon, and occasionally a fill-in preacher at a Southern Baptist church in Virginia. For his day job, he's a VP at a company called Major Safety. But in his spare time, he reads Trinitarian theology and related fields like patristic history. A husband of 22-plus years, he also dabbles in guitar playing, and he blogs at a blog called Odd in the Truth, which is a phrase from G.K. Chesterton's famous book called Orthodoxy. Some of us know him through Twitter, where he asks good and pressing questions of theologians and other scholars. And once in a while, he listens to the Trinity's podcast. Corby Amos, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Hey, Dale. Thank you for having me. So you and I know each other through Twitter. I would guess we've had hundreds of interactions there. Is that about right? Yeah, I think over the last couple of years, it's, it's been at least that. Email and Twitter, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So tell us a little bit about who you are and, and just what your spiritual journey has been. I have uh, been a Christian since my early 20s, since college. What is that, early 90s? And uh, grew up like many people who are Christians in, in the church. Mother and father went to a Nazarene church at the time. and uh, But I didn't trust in Christ, come to Christ till my junior year of college. And uh, since that time, you know, growth spurts, backward spurts, around 2000 or so, my wife and I got involved in a church, a, a Southern Baptist church that she grew up in here in, in uh, Suffolk. Eventually I found myself teaching and that's when everything started taking off. That was probably around 2000 or so. Of course, the best way to learn is to teach, if you do it well. So that was about 10 years ago or so that started. And Sunday school classes, yeah. And typically in, in a Southern Baptist church, they'll use some kind of literature. I never went that way. I just wanted to do it myself through a, an entire book, one book at a time, a few verses at a time, reading reading you know academic commentaries is, is how I started. And that's kind of paved the way actually to where I am right now talking to you. So you, you like to just go with the text. You don't want to have little bite-sized chopped up little studies. You like to have the real meat. Definitely. I mean, it's a, we always talk about diving deep into the words. I feel like it will transform you. It will shape you. It will change you. And that can't be done if all you're doing is trying to dig out application. You just got to, you know, dig into mm -hmm. it and, and see what it's saying the cultural background, context. I mean, to do that, I have to read. So not just commentaries. I have to read history. I have to read um, biblical theology. I have to read monographs, you know, like um, if I'm doing Romans and Paul, I got to read John Barclay. I got to read Matthew Bates stuff on allegiance, just whatever, because just to provide some deep, good, stuff. That's my goal anyway. Now you say you, uh, you were born again when you were in college. Did you, did you study anything that was in any way related to theology? No, uh, anthropology, cultural anthropology. Mm. I mean, we were getting, we'd get into religion a little bit. Sigmund Freud, 
Malinowski, all these kind of guys, Levi Strauss. You learn good critical thinking skills, but nothing directly related to the Trinity or Christianity. Yeah, those are typically the most atheistic professors, <laughs> right. sociologists and anthropologists. They're always at the top of the list, more than philosophers or physicists or chemists. Yes, yeah. That my, my main professor was definitely that. He was definitely not a Christian. Yeah, so it was a good experience for me. Because that's when I that's when I began to start thinking about coming to Christ and and exploring that more was while I was in four hundred level classes with this professor. It forced the issue. You, you yeah needed to get yeah. serious at that point. Right. Yeah, that that's makes right. sense. When you really came to faith as a young adult, looking back, what role did you think that Trinitarian language and theology played in your faith and in your spiritual life? Yeah, good question. Zero. Zero. I would say zero. I don't ever remember a conversation. I'm not saying there wasn't one, but I don't mm. rem ever remember a conversation about the Trinity. And I don't remember ever having questions about the Trinity, mm. which, which of course is one of my gripes nowadays. But yeah, I would, I'd have to say zero. And I know that would frustrate a lot of folks. <laughs> That's that, interesting. Yeah. That you and I follow on Twitter. Yeah. Well, occasionally, uh, Trinitarian theologian will quote Carl Rahner's complaint that most uh, Trinitarians are practically Unitarians in their thinking. But yeah, I don't think it's a problem or, well, is it a problem? Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's been addressed really. Uh, I was born again when I was uh, seven years old going on eight. And uh, honestly, the only time I really remember the Trinity coming up is when we would sing that hymn God in three persons, uh, the doxology, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And I kind of wonder, oh, I wonder what that is. And, right. and I never really thought much about it. It didn't seem to be really a topic. But yeah, same. Yeah, I'd, I'd never thought anything about it. I didn't encounter the Trinity until uh, really in earnest until I started teaching. Mm -hmm. And of course, it would come up in New Testament commentaries on uh, um, probably back in 2010, I spent about two and a half, three years in the Gospel of John. Oh. And honestly, that is where it really started to raise its head. And I had to start dealing with it. Probably that, probably that long ago, yeah. Yeah, so what was it about the Gospel of John that struck you? As I'm trying to really dig into the text and the background and, and teach, you know, I'm, I'm reading stuff. And so um, most of the time, this is probably the case for a lot of teachers, not academics, but teachers and churches, is that you're going to read, it's like a confirmation bias reading. Mm -hmm. You're going to get suggestions from your pastor or from other peers that are from authors or from the tradition that you're part of. Um, and you'll read that stuff and it'll help inform, you know, give you some good information for a, a lesson. But what happens is the more critical you think, the more your eyes start to open up. And I don't mean critical in a bad way. And you'll come across a text that you'll say, man, what this guy's doing with this text just seems to flatten it out entirely. It's like he's going to such lengths to harmonize the text with his tradition that we're losing the text. And I started to see that more and more. An example is from like John 10, 34 through 36, mm -hmm. that passage where Jesus quotes Psalm 82 you know, the you are God's mm -hmm. passage. Mm -hmm. You know, all the normal evangelical scholars deal with that as human judges. I stumble across Michael Heiser, who I know you've interviewed. 
and his take was just totally different. So that sent me off on a whole nother trajectory. That was about 2010 or so, like I said. And, and after that, I'm just, I really start consuming everything I could with whatever topic I was dealing with, because it, that showed me that if you stay within the fence of your tradition, you might get some stuff right, but you're going to miss so much. And that habit I developed that started with that led to, you know, what happened a couple of years ago when I first encountered your podcast and took off on the Trinity. You started to get an appetite for scholarship that felt like it was a little more out of the box, that it wasn't just sort of restating foregone conclusions. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as you know, the, and scholars know this, right? This is like, this is no secret, but most folks in the pew just are never exposed to this. There are so many good alternatives to difficult texts. I like to think we deserve to know most of those yeah. and understand them. It, even if you don't change your mind, you know, it's like kind of a, a exposing yourself to this landscape. That's what I call it, I guess. The, the Bible is kind of this landscape that has so many different dimensions and things and shapes. And, you know, let's not flatten it out. Let's appreciate it for what it is and really explore it. And sometimes a tradition, I think, can kind of flatten it out and make it bland. And I didn't want to do that anymore. So I had to read different stuff. One thing I think a lot of people don't realize about academic theology, and I didn't realize it for a while, is that it's kind of balkanized. The evangelicals are disliked by the mainstreamers and the, quote, liberals. The evangelicals all cite each other and kind of stick together and publish in the same presses and have their own conferences. And the other ones kind of exclude them. And I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's really easy just to stay in that little circled wagon area of evangelical scholarship. It's strange. Like if you met someone that only would read Roman Catholic scholars, you would say, well, don't you think you're probably missing out on some stuff? You know, because right. they're all Catholic. But I guess evangelicals have this image like we're the... Uh, we're the real Bible people and the real the, the, the people without any kind of distorting tradition. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is Trinitarian related. Take the idea of theosis or deification or whatever you want to call it. I think Michael Berg, he came up with Christification, whatever. I mean, Southern Baptists don't talk about that at all. And, and that's a huge deficit in our conversation about what it means to have to be in union with Christ. Mm. You know, that's just one. There's a lot of examples of, of what you're talking about, how it takes form. I think people get comfortable in a certain lane. So if uh, your teachers or pastor are comfortable in that lane, then most po folks in the pew, that's the lane they're going to drive in. I don't like that. That's why I press the guys in my class to really expand out. And they enjoy it. You know, even if they disagree with me, they enjoy it. Since you focused on this topic, what, if anything, has surprised you and what you've learned? Probably a couple things. One would be how crucial cultural context and background is to understanding the Bible. I know a lot of evangelicals talk about the perspicuity of Scripture. You know, you can just read it and from it distill out what you need to know. Maybe, maybe they're just referring to the gospel itself, but there's, of course there's a disagreement about what the gospel is. That's a huge one. It's like 
to understand a text like that John 10 text, Psalm 82. You got to to really dig into that. It requires a lot of effort understanding ancient Near Eastern ideas about the divine council. You know, all that stuff Heiser talks about what Elohim are, how they serve. I think he says in the divine council under God's authority, all this kind of stuff. Now, I don't know what your view is on that human judges or not, but that's just one example. I mean, I guess my view is that I think originally that it meant something more than humans, but it might have been interpreted as humans just in Jesus's day, because uh, Jesus's argument is these people that are less than me, those to whom the word of God came, if they can be called gods, then it just can't be blasphemous if I am called son of God. So I'm greater than them, and I'm being called this actually lesser title, son of God. So it just can't, it's really a brilliant, devastating argument, I think. He he, mm. he smears their point. It makes me crazy when people just focus on the very beginning of the episode where the Jews say, hey, you're making yourself equal to God. We're going to stone you. Um, and they, yeah. they ignore Jesus's argument. Like, that's not interesting. <laughs> that's just a good example of, of someone may not agree with your take or someone else's take, but when you at least try to understand the other person's approach, you're going to learn something about yours. You might learn something to make it better. And of course, this is especially true when we're talking about the Trinity. Oftentimes, one of my frustrations is, I don't know if people take the time to understand much of what you're saying. I think you just, it seems to me, many of them just blow you off right off the bat. Oh, me personally? And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, a philosopher. Mean, you don't need to listen to that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that, you know, that frustrates me because... And a heretic. Trying to understand your side has taught me as much as reading about uh, the issue from people that I agree with. So, but yeah, I mean, it's there's just um, so much about the Bible that requires effort to get at. It's it's not all clear. You end up down that road where you you are tightrope in this literal interpretation approach, and you're just going to go so wrong so many times if you don't understand cultural background contexts. I guess I think the perspicuity should be understood for the original audience because yeah, that may, yeah. I mean, there are tricky spots in these books, especially John. I think John is very, uh, has a lot of pitfalls in it and maybe Romans has a lot of convoluted arguments in it. But I mean, generally speaking, the new Testament books were designed to be read out loud in an assembly and you'd have all kinds of people just sitting there. Sure. And they weren't learned treatises or occult uh, encoded documents of some kind. Like they were just, they're supposed to have their mean on their face, like particularly the synoptics. Like I just, I think people just brutally overread them constantly. At least a lot of the evangelical scholars that I'm reading, like for instance, Jesus is walking on the water. Well, God's portrayed as walking on the water in the old Testament. So see, he's trying to tell you that Jesus is God. Like, no, he's, He's telling you his thesis at the beginning, middle, and end of the book. Ah, <laughs> uh, I got you. It's yeah. right on the surface. It's in big, bold letters on a sign. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. You know, Gospel of Mark, particularly. But then what, what's perspicuous to the guy in the first century isn't perspicuous to the guy in the 21st century, and so there's your problem. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, 
what I tell my guys all the time is when you come to scripture, and of course everybody knows this, but I remind myself and them about this all the time is we're bringing our own baggage to the text. And you know what? We need to learn to recognize what that baggage is. In the first century, they had their baggage and that's how they were reading the text. And to, to under just what you said, to understand what they may have heard, well, you got to know what their baggage was, what, what was going on at that time. Um, it's my two cents. I kind of think that uneducated people have less baggage. Like they don't have a head full of theories that they have to defend. So <laughs> they could still misunderstand, of course, but uh, they're not yeah. going to press well, it into I, their own mold. And I'm definitely not talking about academic baggage because, I mean, the guys in my class are farmers and bi- biologists or, you know, just normal folks. They're not academics. But they got cultural baggage. And first century folks had cultural baggage, whether it was uh, their honor-shame culture, all that kind of stuff. It just kind of informs their how, how they would hear it, seems to me anyway. So I just think, think that's important to teach the Bible is to get, in, get into all that and unpack it. And of course, all that relates to the Trinity, too. When the Trinity's podcast returns... What does the average Southern Baptist layperson think about the Trinity? So you're an experienced Sunday school teacher of Baptist laymen in Virginia? Yes. What does the average Baptist layman in Virginia think that the Trinity is? Like, how would you describe <laughs> their understanding? I know there's a lot of different things that people will say. I'm just curious what, what your take on that is. Right. So um, pretty much like mine was until two years ago, the Trinity is a word that describes that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay. That's pretty much it. I would think that would be about it. Anything, when you start asking questions, it's a mystery. Mm. That's the extent of it. People that read a little bit will say, and it's crucial, uh, a crucial part of the gospel, mm. the triune work of the God of the Bible. And But honestly, I don't hear that much from just normal lay folks. I think that's more for apologetics aficionados. Yeah, yeah, probably so. That was the only place I would run into it. It's, you know, it's those doggone JWs, uh, they're out yeah. there denying the obvious here, man. I mean, I would have said that like in the 90s. There was a stage where I would have said it probably that um, I would have given you a modalistic kind of thing. Like it's God's um, unseen aspect and his fatherly character and his his nice side, his sonly side. I think I've heard heard some of that. I, I've actually asked them. I've taught a number of lessons on the Trinity over the past couple of years, and I've asked them what they think about it. And you get different answers. A lot of them, honestly, they sound like they're some kind of social Trinitarians. They, mm, I was really by that I mean that they read the text of the Bible and they see that Jesus Christ is a person, the Father is a person. And the Holy Spirit, they're told, is a person. 
they're going to think in a, a modern way about what a person might be. So, you know, there's a, each has a mind and a will and acts from that, their own mind and will. And there's three of those. Now, how they're one is a mystery. So that I encounter quite a bit. In my circles, there's, I would say, almost zero comprehension of how the three persons subsist in the one essence. And it's the one essence that has the will and the, you know what I mean? So I run into that a lot. Well, yeah, I want to hear more about your views uh, in a little bit, but uh, just to stay on this topic for a minute. So when you read the synoptics, you got God and then you've got Jesus and he seems to be somebody else because they talk to each other and or the one right. they talk about each other and, and Jesus prays to God and so on. So, and you naturally assume that a person is a kind of being. So if they're different persons, they're different beings. That's right. I've talked to people, I mean, evangelical lay people who they'll say it's three parts of God. Um, and then I say, well, are you sure it's three parts of God? Yeah. And then they'll say, yeah, I've heard that. They'll yeah. say something like it's like three gods basically, or something that kind of implies that. Like, oh, right. no, wait, that's yeah. not right. But then they'll go back to my modalistic kind of thing. It's kind of like God's three personalities. Mm-hmm. I always found that with evangelicals, it was all about the deity of Christ really until the Jehovah's witnesses or somebody comes up and then break out the fancier, you know, yeah. more erudite moves. We didn't encounter, at least in my tradition at where I was, we never ever um, encountered that I can recall any apologetic um, version of the Trinity or how to deal with the Trinity. I just don't ever remember that happening, like defending the Trinity. Pretty much, and to answer your question again, the other way that people describe the Trinity is they just look at the New Testament and they say, look, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's three of them. And they're God. They run across those three in the Bible and they say, yep, there it is. It's right there. So that's... Well, you got to look kind of hard for the Holy Spirit part, but yeah, they, that's probably what they'll say, if, at least if they had some theological education. So why not just accept that it's a mystery and just, hey, look, you're never going to understand this in this life. You're just beating your head against a wall. Like, why aren't, why aren't right. you just wasting your time? How do you answer when yeah. people say that to you? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question, too. I don't know if I've ha ever had anybody ask. I, I, one person asked me one time, he said, man, you sure seem to be consumed with the Trinity. But he didn't ask me what I thought of the Trinity or how I understand the Trinity. He just wondered why I was so consumed with the Trinity. Uh -huh. So, of course, that's easy to answer that question because it's awesome. There's, you gotta, you gotta read history. You gotta read philosophy. You gotta read the Church Fathers. You gotta read theology. Anyway, yeah, I've I've never been asked that. Even when I was teaching through it, they didn't. You know, I think a lot of people just get kind of glazed over when you're going to start talking about the Trinity. Mm. They just think, well, it's not, it's not anything I'm ever going to get. We've been told this is what the deal is. So why spend time doing it? And I don't know. That's, that's what I run into a lot. Occasionally you'll run into your favorite three who's and one what. Uh -huh. Yeah. You might run into that. Puts it into modern lingo, you know. That defeatist attitude that you're talking about just kills me because it's got to be the product of bad theology, bad writing, bad scholarship, because any scholar should be able to get you 
interested in what they're doing. They should be pulling you along so that, you're, that you feel like you've gotten somewhere. If people are just sitting there going, oh, we'll never get anywhere with this. This is just a total obvious dead end. I mean, that's got to be the scholar's fault to me. Yeah, I mean, maybe the average person in like in my church, though, they don't they're not going to not all of them, but many of them aren't going to read academic books. And, and probably if they picked one, it wouldn't be on the Trinity. Right. So it's just any Sunday school teacher will tell you that, you know, man, I just wish the folks in my class would engage more on their own read, you know, read stuff, read stuff. And I, I think that's just, you know, they're doing, they're doing life. So they're going to engage with something. It's probably not going to be the Trinity. Yet at the same time, all the academic Trinitarians are saying the Trinity is the most important thing about our faith. Right. So there's a huge disconnect there. It is interesting. Yeah, they're... And sometimes you get the idea that they're protesting too loudly, like they know it's not central, but they're just pounding the table that it should be central, but it's just not. I mean, uh, well, practically it, for the average Christian, yeah, I don't yeah. see it as, I think a scholar, one of these guys would, would argue that the foundation that Christian brother or sister is walking on is Trinitarian through and through. They just don't know it. Right. Yeah. Fred Sanders, everybody's a Trinitarian, including me now. He defines someone as a Trinitarian if they just have interacted with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, that's me. I, but I'm not. It's an abusive language to call me a Trinitarian. I think I read that article. Yeah. So that was, a, yeah, that's an interesting take. The right? people that, the people that Ronner's calling practically Unitarian are just like, you know, hardly Trinitarian at all. He just comes, oh, no, 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 they're fully Trinitarian, but he's, He's defined Trinitarian, so it doesn't have to do with your theology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it gets to the idea, can you be something without understanding what you are? Maybe you can. I don't, I don't know. I've not really thought about it. Well, if sure you, you say can. You're, yeah. If you say you're right. <laughs> you could like blondes and not realize that you like blondes or something. But, I mean, but, yeah. but this is a... Um, this is a theoretical matter. Like this has to do with your, your understanding that sort of the model that you apply to God, I think. So I don't really think you can, at least not in a full sense. How have your fellow believers in your life reacted to your explorations? I think you mentioned uh, confusion and maybe bemusement. Are any of them uh, hostile or just indifferent? Are any of them non-Trinitarian you found out? How has been the reaction to the people around you to your investigating these things? I've not had any um, problems with it at all from anybody. I've had no confessions of from Unitarians or anything. Yeah, I, I mean it's been it's been fine. I talk about it; it's out there for everybody to see. They all know I like to question stuff and and really try to understand stuff. It's kind of my personality. It's not been a problem. You know, I have good conversations with my wife about it. So I've not felt like this has been dangerous for me at all to do this. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So that's, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm glad I'm, I can do that. Yeah. Like I said, the only thing my pastor said to me is, man, you sure like the Trinity. <laughs> and yep. Yeah. Of course, the reason it's not dangerous is because you're still a Trinitarian. <laughs> Well, that's true. If if somebody, yeah, that, that could be a problem. I have a good friend who's, um, you know, basically a lifelong evangelical, and uh, 
he found himself pretty unwelcome in a couple of churches, and, and uh, not because he's an obnoxious person. He's not. He's actually very gentle and uh, yeah, unassuming. But um, just the fact that they knew he thought that that he he came to Unitarian view, um, right? That was like one guy made it the he made it the point of every sermon every Sunday. Everything now is about the Trinity, even if he was uh, preaching okay. on I don't know Amos. You know, it was all about the. Trinity. Right. Oh, no. It was obnoxious. They, him and his wife, eventually left that church. That kind of touches on like a, a struggle. One of the struggles I've had is is how does evangelical Christianity view a Unitarian like yourself? Mm-hmm. And as you know, many folks will call you a heretic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they mean that in a formal way, like you don't subscribe to the creed. I think they mean that you're not a Christian mm-hmm. when, the, yeah. when they say that. And, um, I, you know, I have a problem with that. I wouldn't, I couldn't say that. One of the reasons I couldn't say that is because I understand the, your arguments and where you're coming from and what you're trying to say and, you know, got a lot of good, sincere questions and observations and, I know for 300 years after during the development of Christianity, there are a lot of folks, a lot of really smart folks that were not Trinitarians. Yeah. Yeah. There's a steady drip of people who just um, read the Bible and conclude, well, it's not really Trinitarian. Like I've been told, I've thought about doing a series of podcasts or blog posts called whistleblowers. Cause I mean, there's just dozens of them. I have dozens of books on my shelf, people still alive or people living in 1750 1850 it's you know it's been happening ever since the reformation it's what happened to some of the anabaptists who became non-trinitarians i mean i would have said that i was a heretic or an apostate if i encountered the current me when i you know in 1995 but i was just i was assuming the protestant tradition that the trinity is just obviously essential like if, uh-huh. and maybe you don't have to believe it, but man, if you deny it, oh man, straight to hell for you. Cause it's, it's obviously essential. And now that I've looked into it, like, no, I just don't think it's obviously essential at all because they managed to preach the gospel and acts just fine. And uh, yeah, none of this yeah. stuff ever comes up. So I tell right. people, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian cause I accept everything they're preaching in acts. And I understand the new Testament. I agree with what I understand it to be saying. I know you think that I'm crazy, but um, <laughs> You know, God help us, we're all going to misunderstand some stuff. So we know that yeah. God's not just waiting to hammer people because they're misreading texts and making theoretical errors. You said earlier, and I think you're right, I think there are people that write that approach off because they think you, it's your philosophy that has kind of clouded your view of Scripture. And that just tells yeah. me they, have, they, have, they haven't actually investigated what you are saying about Scripture. And of course a lot of other people throughout history. It still surprises me how bigoted some people are about that. What the PhD in philosophy's done is it's made me it's made me notice all the philosophical assumptions and I try not to assume anything just beyond logic and things that I claim are mm. things that we know by common sense. Right. Like I mean I purposely am staying away from philosophical speculation except yeah. when I'm forced into it by my fellow Christian philosophers who have a lot of interesting speculations on these subjects. But I mean, sometimes the person who imagines that they have no philosophical influences on them, sometimes that person's the most captive to 
unexamined philosophical influences. That's what it's done. It's made me skeptical of philosophical explanation. Oh, okay. It's not made me in love with it. I'm not in love right. with it. <laughs> right, right. It is what it is. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Amos shares with us a list of complaints he has about the scholarship that he's reading. I made a list just for myself of, I don't know, five or six things that I bump up against or that bug me, uh, trying to understand the Trinity. And, well, the logical problem is like really the least important thing on the list to me. It's things, as I've understood how it developed, so questions surrounding the development of the doctrine between the Bible and the fourth century. Poor coverage of the The development. development. That's a huge problem. That one really bugs me. There's a lot of propaganda afoot, really. And the first people that'll tell you that, as you know, you're reading people like Ayers. They'll tell you that earlier historians have like simply believed people like Athanasius or Gregory of Nazianzus and current day historians like people like Barnes and Ayers and uh, Richard Cross. They're like correcting all this stuff or uh, uh, Hanson. Yeah. In his big magisterial book. What's funny is uh, I'll, I'll get in Twitter conversations with Trinitarians, preachers, and, and other folks that will kind of continue to propagate that, gloss it over, and they'll cite heirs. They'll point me in the direction of heirs, and I'm reading heirs. And I don't think he's saying what they think he's saying about the how this took place. At least that's not my reading anyway. Yeah, Ayers is a very good book. It's a very, very yeah. partisan book, but it's still a good book. His history seems to be really good when he starts like doing some theology or, or I don't know, he kind of like, I told one guy, he kind of spits and shines too much sometimes, it looks like to me, on some of the guys. But yeah, I mean, that that's a big problem for me. It's not like caused me to tailspin into uh, questioning anything necessarily, but Dale, here's the deal, right? So the more you read about this stuff, you see um, that it's never what you're told it was. And right off the bat, that's frustrating, mm. right? I call one of my problems on the list is Trinitarian glossing syndrome, I've called it. Mm-hmm. Which, what you find is like with the development, you're going to find that. Let me read you an example. This one cracks me up, okay. if you don't mind. This is from James White, his book on the Trinity. And he's talking about 325. I read this and I'm like, this, this is nuts. Anyway, the Nicene definition had to fight for its life, not on the basis that it was an infallible church council and therefore had some special authority in and of itself, but on the only meaningful and solid foundation, its faithfulness to the scriptures. That's not to say that the opponents of the deity of Christ fought on the same grounds. In fact, the Arian resurgency that took place in the decades after Nicaea was due mainly to political factors and the maneuvering of particular leaders who were opposed to the Nicene definition. Oh, man. <laughs> so 
That is painfully just, wrong. <laughs> I know. It's. I mean, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm oh. an idiot. And then I read that and I'm like, dude, no. Wow. That is, he goes on and it doesn't get any better. And so the more you read this stuff, you, you encounter things where they are, and when I say glossing, I, I mean like they're kind of flattening out problems or misrepresenting. That might be a harsh word. I've gotten pushback on using misrepresenting. But I, I call it spinning, uh, like like well, a spinning, political yeah. commenter. They're kind of doing that to provide this support for their ideas that may not be there, be as strong as they want it to be. All right, so I'm just a regular dude in the church pew, and I encounter a scholar doing that. What am I to think? You know, I'm, To me, it's a huge problem. Mm. Other scholars don't think it is that right. I've encountered. Yeah. But just as a guy in the pew, to me, that's a problem. I mean, this is, this is not honest, good, critical thinking. This is a spin. And I run into that constantly when I'm reading about the Trinity. You know, I, I put one up about uh, Swain and how he misrepresented Larry Hurtado. That jumped out at me like that. And it's, I contacted Hurtado, gave him the quote. He responded back and said, nope, I've never said that. I don't, I, I don't think that. Yeah, this I'm is like, a post at your blog, Odd in the Truth. Right. This dude is the president of a seminary, smart guy, Christian guy. Why would he do that? I, scholars may not care, but the dude in the pew, me trying to figure all this stuff out, when I notice that that mistake has been made, I'm like, man, this, this is disheartening. I'll be honest with you. I'm like, this is, this is not good. I've found that there's certain sort of scripts about what's supposed to have gone on. People just, they cannot be put off that script, especially apologists for some reason. Like, there are these narratives that just, they're, they're just trapped in them. Like, like here's one that's, that's, I think, largely due to uh, Cardinal Newman, the Catholic apologist. When he wrote his book about Arius in the 19th century, he tries to claim that Arius was this philosophy guy, this rationalist. Right, so he's imagining him like this enlightenment guy who just cannot just accept things that he can't fully understand. And I mean, recent scholarship just blows this away. I mean, it's just wrong. Like he was, mm. he was, he was a little bit philosophical, but they all were. They were all dabbling in it, and really, the things he was saying were very traditional. That kind of subordinationism uh, goes way back, and at least in some circles. Right. So yeah, he wasn't like some guy that was like a philosophy major out of control. <laughs> yeah. I think Ayers talks about him as being one that kind of spoke of the son from the will of the father versus the guys that were speaking about the son from the Uzi of the father. Yeah. And of course, what that all meant, you know, still was being worked out. But yeah, the will people versus the substance people. Yeah. Other scholars, good scholars have made this distinction. And the, the will people are the people like Eusebius of Caesarea and that whole camp, right. a big camp of people seemingly. Um, yeah. The bad guys. Yeah. yeah. The guys who apparently, according to James White, did all the manipulating. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so I don't know. That's a huge problem for me. Development yeah. of the doctrine and, and then all the stuff that that goes with that. Another one is our, what I see as disconnects between the Bible and the doctrine and specifically with language, mm -hmm. that the language of the Bible versus the language of the doc, doctrine, uh, you know, it's a, it's just a hang up for me. I, um, I gotta, I gotta work through that. We'll say a little more about that. What, what do you see as the disconnects? Um, yeah. So, well, some of them are just by that. I mean, literal disconnects. 
there's just this constant use of Latin or Greek phrases to describe what's happening in the Bible from a doctrinal point of view. And as scholars throw these words around like they're in a Walmart talking to a, the, the cashier, but communicatio idiomatum, mm. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, teach that. Teach that to an eight-year-old, right? It's not going to fly. You open the Bible and show them the relationship of the father to the son, they'll get that. Right. right? Yeah. I'm not saying that there's no connection there somewhere. I'm just saying that the, the way that scholars talk about the Trinity is problematic for me. And I'm saying that as a teacher of normal people. If what we believe can't be conveyed simply, especially if it's supposed to be essential to the faith, if we can't convey it simply, then to me that's, you mentioned earlier, there's a problem with the scholar. I think that's part of that. It's just, it drives me crazy, that, that whole idea. And it's not just a grammar disconnect or the language disconnect. You know, the, all the hypostases and the ousias and the subsisting in and the eternal modalities or the eternal aspects. And, you know, and of course, every scholar has their pet phrase and they don't like the other guy's phrase. I run into that too. But it's also philosophy. You know, there's this reading back into the Bible, that kind of philosophical matrix of the fourth century. Mm. I just don't see Paul uh, wondering about how the one God or the three persons subsisted in the one God. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see that as a concern of his. I'd have to study this because it just came to me. I'm not even sure he had a whole lot of thought about God. I'm going to use another phrase. What is it? Ad intra? Is that what they use all the time? Yeah. I'm not sure he even really thought much about that. Well, I mean, if that just means God's, you know, intrinsic qualities, I think he he thought God was holy and all-knowing and eternal. I guess I'm referring like to that. like his, I guess I'm referring to those. Oh, you mean the, the, internal, the relations internal of relations. the Trinity to yeah. one another. Yeah, the internal relations, yeah. Well, I mean, there's relations in that um, the risen Jesus is uh, the mediator between God and man, those kind of relations. Yeah. Maybe you're talking about the alleged eternal divine dance of happy Yeah, the perichor, what is it, the perichoresis yeah. or the... That's just not a theme of his teaching, no, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so, I don't know, that bugs me a lot. Again, it just kind of seems some of this stuff is crammed back into the New Testament. And then there's like an idea this along this disconnect I've talked about a lot since I read David Bentley Hart's, some of his stuff. At least he concedes this, right? That there's this Logos metaphysic mm -hmm. running the show for the first 300 years or so of Christianity. You talk about it a lot, this two-stage Logos theory stuff. Yeah, yeah, very prominent in Justin. Yeah, it's all, it's, you know, go, goes back to Philo probably or before that. Mm -hmm. And and all of a sudden, bam, right? It changed. Okay, great, it did change by 381 maybe or somewhere around there. Well, why, how, what? What is it in the Bible that warranted that change? You know, these are the kind of questions I have and just struggle with and, You'll get answers, but they're not, you know, very satisfactory yet. Yeah, I mean, in the fourth century, they just started coming up with reasons why the uh, the eternal logos had to be fully divine and not less than God than God in any sense. 
Whereas before, you know, it was it was basically all subordinationists, except maybe yeah. maybe some of the modalists. Exactly, and then I don't know. They came up with a new approach. Okay, and then some people think, well, the the Holy Spirit must have been guiding that. I don't. How do we know that? I mean, that's that's an interesting claim to make. I've always wondered if you justify if the outcome of such and such was A, that means the Holy Spirit wanted A. Right. Yeah. That seems like you could get very, you can go very dangerous with that. Yeah. Um, idea. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of fatalistic. And yeah. Um, I mean, as Protestants, we think there was all kinds of really wrongheaded decisions and practices. Right. Decisions that were made, teachings that arose and practices that became very prominent. And we, we think they're really wrongheaded. Um, so yeah. then, like, how do we know this isn't one of them? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, these are questions worth, asking for me i mean definitely and then some of the bible disconnects are things you raise exegetical arguments about what a particular text might mean so there's this doctrinal interpretation of the text but it might be that that's not how that text was interpreted for hundreds of years and there are other ways to interpret that text you know john uh, romans 9 5 is like a classic example Mm -hmm. of you know you can make that mean what you want it to mean and or, or John 1.1c. A good scholar is going to concede, yep, you can go quite a few ways with this. It's not just a Trinitarian interpretation. And I, I think good scholars will tell you that even the non-Trinitarians for the first few centuries of the church would use John 1.1c to make their case. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's just a bunch of disconnects that drive me nuts. And when I bother people on Twitter, it's because I'm trying to find answers to keep that bridge between the 381 and the Bible uh, standing and strengthen it and see who built it. Why is it still standing? Is it safe to go over? You know, I'm trying to figure all that stuff out. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Amos asks, what do the official Trinitarian formulas actually mean? The other uh, list is the actual content of the doctrine of the Trinity, how it's taught, and if anybody actually knows what some of the stuff means. Take that phrase, um, three hypostases subsisting in one essence. I hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can ask a guy on the street in your church. He's not going to have any clue what that means. I'm like, okay, so this is a, a fundamental part of our faith that description of what it is has no meaning to most folks in the Christianity. So how do we convey this to them? Well, okay, what you don't do is you don't use bad metaphors like, well, it's clover, it's water, ice, and steam, or I'm a son, brother, and uncle, or all that kind of stuff. It's kind of difficult. You got to talk about, you know, and they'll start throwing out more fancy words. And, you know, just looking for a, a straight up plain meaning 
or what's intended by that kind of language. And that's just one example. There's all kind of language. And of course, I've read what how people try to describe it, but it's, you know, it's just, and then, you know, bring it back to the Bible, of course. You have a problem with that sometimes, I think. But yeah, it's that kind of language. As a mind game for myself, I stuck that language in to a verse. And I'm like, if you brought this, like if you're teaching the Trinity to a, a class and you tell them this is what you believe, a, a way to convey how weird it sounds is to just paraphrase a Bible verse with this language. And so I did Colossians 1.13. I'll read it real quick, but I got this language from a guy on your podcast, Scott Oliphant. Mm. And so this is what 113 really means to a Trinitarian scholar. One God's eternal modality that is the so distinguished hypostatic act father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved one God's eternal modality that is the so distinguished hypostatic act son. Oh, yeah, great. Thank you. That cleared it it out really well. We don't actually teach what the Trinity is because— Well, I do. See, that's— Well, right. (laughs) I got two chapters in my book about this. Yeah, a pastor's not going to teach that because they don't get it. I don't get it. And, it, you know, there are people in their pew don't get it. Well, a good amount of my writing, and, and again, this is two of my book chapters, but it's other things I've written too. It's it's kind of like, if you want to be a Trinitarian, let me help you. Do, you. do you mean this? Do you mean this? Do you mean this? Do you mean this? Like, here's a bunch of options. And people, yeah. I don't know, people don't like this. I was interacting with another guy on Twitter, a uh, nice guy, highly educated guy evangelical, Southern Baptist like yourself. And uh, he's getting kind of uh, irritated. Just the fact that I'm not a Trinitarian, you know, like, come on, man, this has been decided a long time. And his view is that, look, there's just a consensus. And, you know, what are you, an idiot? Like, you haven't heard about this? Like, we all decide this a long time ago. It's, it's a closed issue. And but my point is, well, it's a consensus of language and tradition, but it's not a consensus of understanding because you still have all these views on the right. table. That's right. And that brings up like something that uh, I read a book some years ago from Tom McCall about, I think it was God, who's monotheism, which Trinity or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I reviewed it for yeah. faith and philosophy. It has a lot of virtues. Let me tell you one thing that nobody in the pew knows is that there's more than one version of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, he kind and of admits that there. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of on the social wing. Well, I didn't like the Bauckham part of the book where he uh, he uses... Yeah, I know, you're, I know you're not a fan of that divine identity stuff. Yeah, he uses his ideas about monotheism, and that's how it, that's how it comes out to be monotheism. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm probably not framing these problems I have very well, but you could kind of break them down into like, okay, I'm trying to understand the development and there's a lot of problems there, disconnects that I see are, is the second one. And the third one is the actual content of the doctrine, making sense of it, teaching it, coming to terms with it, and then bringing that back into the Bible so it makes sense. And another one is, I think you've uh, commented on this before in one tweet I did, I'm not sure, but there's this echo chamber, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, this kind of this echo chamber thing going on where uh, one guy writes an article or makes a tweet and, you know, everybody says, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. There's never any constructive, critical thinking pushback going on. It's like there's this climate of circle the wagons and we're a success if we've done that well. 
And that just annoys me because if Sanders, for example, engaged critically with Swain or somebody else, man, we'd sure get a lot more out of it instead of just everybody reviewing everybody else's books and praising each other. And you know what I mean? I just, that drives me nuts. Yeah. Current day theologians are really strange about this. And I've honestly, I've never understood it because I'm a philosopher. I mean, philosophers just love to have a friendly argument about things. They also run out and find like, who's the best proponent of the opposite view and let me lock horns with that person. Yeah. Theologians. mm -hmm. No, there's, they think it's rude to directly challenge anything or directly criticize anything. And not only is it rude, but if they're higher in status than you, then you're a punk Uh and uh, (laughs) should not be acknowledged. I think you're right about that. Philosophers can be, they can be hierarchical too. Like there are philosophers who think that it's beneath them to answer some puny little assistant professor who just got their PhD, but it's, it's way more pronounced in theology for some reason. Yeah. The big shots will only ever interact with each other. I've definitely noticed that. That drives me nuts. Here's the problem is that I don't think they get that there are a lot of just regular folks like me that are reading and exploring and trying to understand. And they're looking for that pastoral kind of interaction for themselves and so that they can give to other lay folks in their church. And that type of circling the wagons and not dealing with yourself critically, I don't think provides the best resource to really effectively teach and pastor those in your church. To me, it does the opposite. It's a huge turnoff for me. You know, if any of those guys ever listen to this podcast, and that's my plea with them, to engage critically with their peers and themselves and really go out of their way to address concerns. Because you and I both know on Twitter, there's a lot of folks like me that are really struggling through this and they really want to understand it. And, you know, they need some help. Yeah, this is another thing about contemporary theology that's disturbed me. They felt for a long time that they have to protect the people in the pew from certain information, particularly like critical scholars or the demythologizers Mm. and other kinds of... uh, modern liberal outlooks they'll talk about it in-house among the members of the guild but they will Mm -hmm. not talk about it to the laity yeah and then yeah 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 it's i mean i think it's a bad thing because then someone goes to college and they turn the next bart ehrman they they had naive exactly yeah i was gonna say the same thing that's right they lose their faith because they they feel like they've been deceived some of these evangelical people that specialize in the Trinity, like they think it's their role to just encourage and tell the flock what's obviously right. And they don't even want to like air any contrary view because like the people can't handle that. I have personally experienced that without a doubt. It's unhelpful and it's frustrating. And, and you know, on your bad days, you think that they're deceiving you or hiding stuff from you. You know, that's on a bad day you're having. On a good day, you're like, you know, maybe they're just... They don't want to make waves. I don't know. But it's a problem. Definitely it's a problem. And it's, I think we'd be farther along if that wasn't how that culture worked with a lot of these guys and girls. Corby Amos, thanks for talking with us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dale. This is great. This 
This week's thinking music has been Ennui by Lee Rosevere. The next Trinity's podcast will be the second half of my conversation with Mr. Corby Amos. And in the second half, we'll actually disagree a bit. After all, I'm a Unitarian and he's a Trinitarian. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Before we go, I'd like to give a shout out to Rashid in Missouri. Rashid, thanks so much for your recurring monthly donation through PayPal. It's much appreciated. I meant to mention this last episode, but I didn't realize that yours was a recurring donation. So thank you very much. If you're a regular supporter of the Trinity's podcast, be looking for an email from me. I'm going to offer you a chance to join in to a video chat update where I'll share some personal details about what's going on in my life and things that might affect the future of the podcast. Thanks and see you next week. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>